We're going to be in verses 5 through 9 this morning. As I talked with one of our elders, uh, Lane Ford, this week about this passage, uh, he and I agreed that we thought it would be good for me to take just a few minutes before I read this passage, uh, a little longer introduction to the passage than I normally do, um, to help address some red flags that will surely pop up as you start to read this passage. As soon as you start to read it, you're going to see that Paul is giving instructions to Christian slaves and masters. Um, Christian slaves and masters, or as the ESV translates it, masters and bond servants. Um, I feel like we need to go ahead and get some of that out of the way so that we can get to how this passage applies. Uh, passages like this were quoted in our own country by Christians who used the Bible to defend the institution of slavery for their own advantage. But these same passages are being quoted by people today who are not Christians to defend their rejection of the Bible for their own advantage. Paul is not defending slavery in these verses. He's not addressing the institution of slavery at all. So what is he doing? We need to do a little background work to help us understand Paul's purpose, and then we'll be able to see how instructions written to slaves and masters 2,000 years ago can possibly apply to us today. First, it will help us to distinguish the Greco-Roman slavery of the first century A.D. from the new world slavery we are more familiar with that developed in the African slave trade. And we note these differences not to excuse slavery, but in order to understand what Paul is saying to those slaves and masters, we need to understand that slavery. Greco-Roman Roman slavery was not based on race. It was not permanent. It could only last for 7 to 14 years. Most slaves were captives from wars or they were indentured servants. Slavery was so much a part of the fabric of Greco-Roman life and society that one out of every three people, they estimate, were part of the slave class. They were the workforce of that day. They were people who sold themselves into servitude to earn a living or they were put into servitude to pay off debts. Some were manual laborers or domestic servants, household servants. Some were educated and served households as doctors, teachers, administrators. And slaves had some rights. A slave could go to court against their master. They could own property. They could own other slaves. That being said... Greco-Roman slavery was still slavery. Aristotle expressed the attitude of that time when he said, a slave is a living tool. He could not imagine any friendship between slaves and masters. The best he could say was that a slave is a kind of possession with a soul. That was the nicest thing he could say. Under Roman law, the father of the household could discipline slaves as he wished. And before Christianity began to take hold of the empire, slaves were treated horribly. They were whipped, chained, 
dethroned wild beasts. The Stoic philosopher Seneca popularized this saying, all slaves are enemies. So you can imagine how radical the words we're about to read were in that culture. Paul was not defending or condoning slavery. On the contrary, by preaching the good news about Jesus and by calling Christians, even slaves and masters, to live Jesus-shaped lives, Paul and the apostles planted the seeds that grew to eventually destroy the institution of slavery. And that leads to the second thing we need to consider before we look at this passage. We have to understand Paul's purpose for writing these words. Is Paul addressing the institution of slavery, or is he addressing Christian masters and slaves? We have to remember that Paul wrote this letter to groups of Christians who met for worship in houses on Sunday mornings. They gathered in households. Households included husbands and wives, children, the extended family, and the domestic servants who worked and lived in the household. (coughs) Excuse me. It was common for Greek philosophers and teachers of that time to to publish what they called household codes. These were instructions for how husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves in a household were to conduct themselves in an orderly way that would promote the health of a society. And so Paul is writing a Christian household code to the Ephesians. His aim is not the institution of slavery, but the instruction of Christian slaves and masters as to how they, as people filled with the Spirit of Jesus, are to live in that institution on Monday morning. Paul is saying this. The gospel works in every situation and circumstance. Jesus has made and is making you new. He is filling you to the full with his resurrection life and love by his spirit right where you are. You can put Jesus on display in the way you relate to your master or to your slaves tomorrow. That's radical. And so what does this have to do with us? As we read this passage, consider this. If Christian masters can begin to relate to all of their slaves in a way that shows Jesus to other masters and slaves in the first century, how much more can Christian employers model Jesus to others in the way they relate to their employees in the 21st century? Consider this. If Christian slaves could begin to relate to their masters in a way that shows Jesus to other masters and slaves in the first century, how much more can Christian employees model Jesus to others in the way they relate to their employers in the 21st century? That's what we're after this morning. And we'll find this out together as we stand and hear the word of God, hear the word of the Lord who loves you. Please pray for my cough. We're working on it. Doctors are working on it. But I'm taking out stock and cough drop companies. Um, But just, just pray. And thanks for your patience. 
Hear the word of the Lord who loves you and knows where you are. Paul writes, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as I pray. Father, would you... (coughs) Now, as we look at what you have to say to us through Paul about how to put Jesus on display at work every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Greek philosopher Plato once said, How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Perhaps that's the thought that rattles in your head on Monday morning when you hit the snooze button for the fifth time and you finally decide, I got to get up and I got to go to the office and serve someone. I got to go to school and serve someone. I got to go downstairs and serve someone and drive them to this, to that, and the other thing. And then you get up on Tuesday and you do it again and again and again. How can anyone be happy when they have to serve someone, Plato said? Well, Paul has been answering that question since chapter 5 and verse 18 when he told us then that followers of Jesus are filled with the spirit of Jesus. And for the last few Sundays, he's been telling us how people who are filled with Jesus become people who are happy to serve in their marriages, happy to serve in their families, and this morning, happy to serve at work. This morning, Paul shows us how being filled with the Spirit of Jesus will change the way you view your work, and it will change the way you do your work. So let's look at those two things together. First, let's see how being filled with the Spirit of Jesus changes the way we view our work. Paul is saying that the work you do, whatever it is, white collar, blue collar, always seen or behind the scenes, high paying, low paying, no paying, or wherever that work is, at the office, on the road, at school, in the home, it all matters. Why? Because Paul is saying your work is a divine calling. Your work is a divine calling. Look at what he says. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord, not to man. Verse 8, knowing you will receive back from the Lord. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You see it? 
When you belong to Jesus and you're filled with the fullness of Jesus, your view of work changes. Paul says, you're not just some worker slaving away for your boss or your teacher or your family. No. First and foremost, you work for Jesus. View Jesus as your master and view yourself as bondservants of Christ. And then Paul says in verse 6, you're not just doing a job, you're doing the will of God. That's amazing. Paul says we should view the work we do at our job, at school, for our family, as doing the very will of God. And therefore, as long as the work you do is not breaking the law of God or the laws of the land, as long as it's not promoting the worship of other gods, and as long as it's not working against the gospel of the kingdom of God, then as a child of God, your work in the world is God's work in the world. And then Paul radically changes how we view who pays us. He says in verse 7, Render service as to the Lord and not to, the, and not to man, verse 8, and you will receive back from the Lord. He signs your paychecks. The ones you get and the ones you're going to get from him. Since your work is to the Lord and for the Lord, you can trust that you will receive from the Lord. And you can trust that what and how and when he pays you will be best. So here's, here's the bottom line. All of your work is sacred, child of God. All of your work is sacred. And Paul says that the work of a slave and the work of a slave owner are equally work done for and with God. And then he says, he's saying, the most mundane, menial work of a slave is work for and with God as much as the work Paul does as a minister of the gospel. The work this slave is doing is as much work for and with God as what Paul does has been doing as a minister of the gospel. A man that I worked for in a church in Knoxville, actually one of my favorite bosses ever, is Dr. Jim McKinney. Uh, Jim grew up as a missionary kid in Honduras. His father uh, started a hospital in Honduras and uh, raised it up and trained uh, Honduran nationals uh, to take it over. And he left, and it is still one of the premier hospitals in the nation of Honduras. Well, Jim became a dentist. And as a dentist, while he practiced dentistry in Knoxville, he also served as an elder at our church and as a volunteer in the high school ministry. In his late 50s, <coughs> Jim sold his dental practice. And he came on staff at the church to be my boss. They asked him if he would supervise and oversee um, all of the student ministries, and that was a staff of 13 full-time people. And Jim used to tell us that he saw his work as a dentist as no less sacred no less a divine calling than his work on staff as a church. As a man filled with the spirit of Jesus, 
he understood that he was working for and with Jesus to help make all things new in his dental practice. He told me that dentistry is ministry. Our physical fallenness, he said, has affected our mouths, and his ministry was to restore smiles and to renew what was broken. He also trained his staff to understand the hearts of people that they were made for community and love because they're made in the image of God. And so he trained them to make sure to create an environment where no matter what people were dealing with, the dentist's office would not be a place to fear, but a place to have their fears relieved in the loving care of people who know Jesus. I tell you that story because I think what Paul is saying is don't view your work as simply work. View what you do as a vocation, a calling by God to work for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. When I was a youth pastor in Dallas, one of the young men I was discipling told me he wanted to be an automotive technician, a mechanic. And uh, I said, that's awesome. The world needs honest, servant-hearted mechanics who know Jesus and who are really good at what they do to use their hearts and their skills to help folks keep their vehicles running. Go and be that guy for the glory of God and for the good of the people you serve. And he did. That's what we're talking about. Being a Christian at work is not only about making money so that you can give it to the church or to some other Christian ministry or, or charities. It's not only about that. It's not less than that. And it's not only about witnessing to your coworkers at work. It's not only that, but it's not less than that. It's no less than all those things, but, but Paul is saying here that you cannot separate your witness from your actual work. Your work is your witness. The very work you do is a calling from God. It is God's will at work through you. Dr. Dan Doriani reminds us that Martin Luther recovered Paul's understanding of work as vocation 500 years ago. It's biblical, and Luther just kind of recovered it for us. He says this, Luther insisted that the farmer shoveling manure and the maid milking her cow please God as much as the minister preaching or praying. Luther taught that as we work in our God-given station in life, we become agents of his providential care. He said, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. God is milking the cows through the milkmaid. Through our hands, God answers the prayers of his children. We pray for daily bread at night, and bakers rise in the morning to bake it. The same holds for clothing. God gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it is on the sheep, it makes no garment. Humans must shear the sheep and spin the wool. So through our work, God clothes the naked. He feeds the hungry and heals the sick. Through our work, we please our maker and we love our neighbor. That's what Luther said the scriptures were teaching. And so friends, being filled with the spirit of Jesus will change the way we view our work. Has it changed the way you view your work? 
But now let's also see how being filled with the Spirit of Jesus changes the way we do our work. Paul is teaching here, do your work from the inside out. Do your work from the heart and for Jesus. As people filled with the Spirit of Jesus, our work must come from inside us, from hearts that, are, from hearts that belong to Jesus and are being transformed by Jesus. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, from the heart for Christ, as bondservants of Christ for Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, from the heart for Christ, rendering service with a good will. That's an inside thing. It's an inside motivation. So Paul is asking us to obey our bosses just as we would obey Jesus, just as if we were obeying Jesus, because we are. It's interesting, the word for obey here literally means to listen under. It means to listen under. It means to serve under the word of another. And he's asking us to become like the slave described in Exodus 21. This was fascinating. Exodus 21 says, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. He will, the slave who decides, I love my master and I want to serve him forever. The master takes him to the doorpost and pierces his ear, and he is his servant from then on. The kind of heart that God wants us to take to work and to school is the heart that says, I love my master Jesus, and since he has bought me with his blood, I have given him my ear. I live under his word. I will do whatever he tells me to do in the place he's called me to do it. And so what does that look like? Well, I want to approach it by telling you what Paul doesn't say it looks like. So listen to this. This is what Paul does not say. And many of these things are what you may say to yourself or others may say to you about work. But this is not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, don't take your work so seriously. No, he says, Obey with fear and trembling. That's, that's respect. That's not terrified fear. That's respectful fear. So yes, take your work seriously. You're working for Jesus. But Paul also doesn't say you should take your work too seriously because you're doing this for Christ and not man. You're going to receive back from Christ. He's your master. So this is what Paul's saying. Knowing who you ultimately serve will keep you from underworking and it will keep you from overworking. It keeps you from being indifferent about your work and it also keeps you from making an idol of your work. It will keep you from being lazy in your work and it will keep you from being a workaholic. Secondly, Paul doesn't say, Oh, you can work half-heartedly. Yeah, 
Just do it half-heartedly. No, he says, do it with a sincere, which means a single, not a double heart, but a sincere, singly focused heart, a heart with a good will. So we don't work half-heartedly. We work wholeheartedly because we work for Jesus. (coughs) Paul doesn't say, you should only work hard when people are watching. He says, we don't do this by the way of eye service, um, which literally means to serve the eyes of someone. We're serving Jesus. And he also doesn't say, you should work hard to get noticed. That's also not working. Uh, That's also working by eye service. I'm just working to get noticed. And Paul doesn't say, You should work hard to make an impression on people, to make a name for yourself. No, Paul says, don't work as people pleasers. He's warning against a kind of pleasing people that's only about protecting and pleasing yourself. And Paul doesn't say, do good work so you'll get rewarded by your earthly boss. He says, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So work as one who's waiting for Jesus to do the rewarding. Friends, I'll be honest with you. I don't always do my work as a pastor from the heart and for Jesus. And you might say, well, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't that what a pastor does? You're supposed to do your work from the heart and for Jesus. That's what you do. No, that's what Christians do. And I happen to be a Christian pastor. So yes, I should do that because I'm a Christian, not just because I'm a pastor. But this pastor sometimes finds himself working from a me-first heart for me. But the Lord has been showing me that sometimes... I do things that look like they're for Jesus, but really I do them with a heart that's working for applause, it's working for approval, it's working for job security. And I don't think you're that much different from me. This struggle is the same for pastors and plumbers, for worship leaders and window washers. So I want to invite you to join me in repenting and confessing to Jesus how we have failed to work from our hearts for him. Join me in remembering the good news that Jesus knew we would do our work from hard hearts. And still, he went to the cross to work on our behalf. Jesus worked to serve us by doing the lowest, most humiliating, blood, sweat, and tears work that any man or woman has ever been asked to do. He did it for God's glory and our good, and it made him glad. It made him glad to do that work. So Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Paul's answer is, when the spirit of Jesus fills you, you begin to view and do your work like he did his. 
on the night before he worked to serve us by a crucifixion that we deserve. Jesus said this to his father. I put it on the front of the bulletin. He said, I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. So friends, tomorrow morning when you get ready to roll out of bed to get to work, remember this good news. Jesus Christ was happy to work from his heart for God to serve you. And here's more good news. If you follow Jesus, you have the spirit of that perfectly happy and fulfilled worker, Jesus, living inside you as you get up to go to work tomorrow. We serve because our master served us. We work to meet the needs of others because we trust that our master, Jesus, has already met all of our truest and deepest needs from the riches of his grace. We can serve even bad bosses and ungrateful co-workers with the submissive heart of Jesus because while we were still his enemies, he worked for us. I want to close with this story from Tim Keller from his book, which I highly recommend, called um, Every Good Endeavor. Tim says, not long after we began our new church in New York City, I saw a young woman who was obviously visiting and darting out after each service. Well, one week I intercepted her, and she told me she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe in it at that point, but she found a lot of it interesting, she said. I asked her how she found our church, Redeemer, and she told me this story. She said she worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her her job. But her boss went into his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went in to thank him. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. She said he was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. Finally, he told her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. And that is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long time and asked, where do you go to church? He suggested that she go to Redeemer, and so she did. His character had been shaped by his experience of grace in the gospel. And it made his behavior as a manager attractive and strikingly different from that of others. This lack of self-interest and ruthlessness on the part of her supervisor was eventually life-transforming to her. Lord Jesus, 
May your work for us transform the way we view and do the work you've given us. That work is essentially to put you on display in the way we work each day. Would you do this by your spirit, we ask. In your name, amen. Well, I'm going to ask in a moment if you would come to the center aisle and come to either side of the table. Our elders will be here to serve you. Uh, When you take the bread and cup... (coughs) (coughs) You take... I'm not sick, by the way, so don't worry about this. It's months of this. When you take the bread and the cup, go back to your seat and hold them until we've all been served, and we will eat together as a family. There's gluten-free bread right here for those of you who need that. So, come and enjoy the work that Jesus has done on your behalf, even while you were still his enemy. And this, this work that he has done for you will be the power that enables you to work for him in the place he's put you. Thanks be to God. And now I remind us that on the night before he did that, awesome work for us. Jesus took bread and he blessed it even as I bless and bless it and thank God for this bread and for the one who made it. (laughs) For the thousands who were behind the making of this loaf of bread. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And that night after supper, in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, remember me. And so, Lord Jesus, we remember you this morning. Would you come and nourish us? and feed us and strengthen us to be your servants in your world, we ask for your sake. Amen.